This is a recording of question and answer sessions during the three-month course in 1982 at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. The speaker is Joseph Goldstein. We frequently speak of uh, receptivity, qualities allowing sensation. Sometimes during a sitting period, Jack will tell us to look for the area and the duration. To look for what? The area of the sensation and the duration and subtleties. Like we're hunting for details. So, am I, am I wrong in seeing these as different views? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And as an example, last night when the music was playing, if you wanted to experience all the subtleties of the music, hearing every note, what was actually required? Was it necessary for the mind to go out to the music? Or is it possible to settle back and be receptive? That is, let the sound, let the music come to the mind with a silent, careful, receptive, allowing mind. You would hear every note, every nuance of the sound. And so those two things of investigation and receptivity, although they sound as if they're different, actually come together when the mind is totally settled back, non-doing, non-interfering. But it's settled back with a careful attention. It's receptive with care. It's as if you're listening to music very carefully. If you let the mind-body experience be the music that you're listening to. So you simply settle back and with that same, that same quality of receiving experience rather than attacking experience. Just receiving just the breath and sensations and thoughts and images and mind states. And what's so, perhaps the most amazing discovery about the whole practice is that experience is doing itself. It doesn't need our help. But you may have noticed how for most of the time in a sitting or in a walking, we try to help experience along. The greatest trick in practice is letting go of that interfering and simply settling back, allowing it all to arise and pass and flow on its own. Does that? (sighs) (laughs) It's true equally of all of our experience. And it's somewhat like learning how to ride a bicycle. You know, as you learn to ride, you fall off a bit on either side until finally you hit the balance. 
the falling off really doesn't contribute to the balance. And yet somehow that seems to be the process that's necessary. And so in the same way as you said, it's true that there's a lot of falling off right, until that balance of non-interfering, until, you, until the mind just settles into that rhythmic awareness of what's happening. But perhaps if you keep it in mind, the, the quality of listening to experience rather than going after it, it might give you a sense of that balance. Once we've uh, stopped doing it for a few minutes, things like commenting mind comes in and says, like, this is great, I'm not, I'm not trying anymore. And the chat is going on again. The commenting mind is not something apart from all other experience. And so if you're sitting and just letting experience come and go and the commenting mind comes, boy, this is great, and you're able to allow that to come and go also, then there's no problem. That just becomes another part of the passing show. But what happens is, boy, this is great. And instead of being okay with that, the fact that that thought came, there's generally a judgment of it. Oh, here I go, mucking things up again. <laughs> you know, and the mind's off and running in that, in that chain of judgmental thought. There's nothing outside of the practice. And that's, that's a hard one to learn. Because we're going along and going along and just feeling and observing and being with experience. And then a thought comes along which we put outside of the field of awareness, like it's going along fine or it's going terribly. It's like that's the corner we back into then from which we observe the process, and that's where we get stuck. It's something like some image that comes to my mind is that of riding a bucking bronco. And it's like the mind experiences just following one after the other very quickly ride it. You know, and ride it. Well, ride it and also pay attention to those places where the bucking throws you off. Right? But if you can stay right on that front edge of just the latest moment's experience, as has been said, Quite often, there are only six objects to watch. (laughs) It's not much. (laughs) And actually, when we sit, there are only really four predominant ones. There's there's usually not predominant smell and predominant taste when we're sitting in the hall. Four things. Sight, sound, sensation, thought. Just to keep track of those. 
and they're all coming and going by themselves. There's nothing to do about any of them, just to allow. I've been getting some of the weirdest thoughts imaginable lately. And, <laughs> I mean, just like Mabel likes fried chicken. Where did that come from? And I was wondering, to what extent am I telepathically receiving thought forms? <laughs> and to what extent are these idiocies really mine? And if there's no me, how can there be a thinker? Anyway. They're really coming from the guy behind you. <laughs> And actually, that would be a very useful perspective. (laughs) Because then you could stop worrying about them. (laughs) Do you invite your thoughts to come? Do you sit and say, okay now, thought, come on. Maybe some of you do sometimes. (laughs) But generally, they just appear. Who knows where they come from? When you see that, as, as you must have been seeing to some extent, that thoughts simply appear, and some of them are totally bizarre. You know, and you wonder, where are they coming from? The thought is thinking itself. It doesn't belong to anybody. The thought does not belong to you. Just think what a relief that is. <laughs> the thought does not belong to you, whatever it is. Right? The most noble thoughts of enlightenment and the most perverse fantasies possible do not belong to you. They're just coming and going. Do you see how simple that makes it? We don't know who knows where they're coming from. Don't they come from our conditioning? Some of them seem to. (laughs) And that's in the sense that you asked that question, you were using, as I heard it, the word conditioning in a pretty narrowly defined sense. That is what we could trace back, you know, through our childhood and and growing up and all the impressions. And certainly a lot of thoughts come from past impression. But you might also think of conditioning as the interplay of all forces in the universe. The fact that everything in some way is interconnected and interdependent. So maybe some of our thoughts come from Mars. It's it's a pretty broad view. And I 
I don't know if you've, you've gotten a sense sometimes when the mind gets somewhat quiet, you can get a sense that the mind, just even a sense of the limitlessness or the boundlessness of mind. It's not limited by this physical frame. You know, the mind is vast. It's without boundary. It's without limit. And so the forces which condition it are also limitless and boundless. You know, that a few years ago, the Dalai Lama was here. He was on a visit to the States and he came to the center. And it was during... It was during the three-month course, wasn't it? And he gave a talk to everyone. And he is totally wonderful. He just embodies real deep love and compassion and wisdom. And somebody asked him a question about what to do with feelings of unworthiness. And his response, this is somewhat of a paraphrase of it, had to do with the the total inappropriateness of unworthiness when we understand this infinite nature of mind. In all of our minds, it's the nature of mind, it's not just some people's minds. The nature of mind is that it contains everything. Just reflect on that for a moment. The nature of mind is that it contains everything. The possibility of Buddhahood, of enlightenment, the highest truth, of compassion, of love, of all the defilements. It's like the mind in all of us contains it all. So when we understand that, what does unworthiness mean? It's like we all possess, we all are. This, this vastness of mind. And really what we're doing in the practice is beginning to understand it, beginning to understand the laws governing it. Now one of the meanings of the word dharma is law. So dharma practice is understanding the laws of the mind. Because when we're in harmony with the law, then there's a sense of peace. When we're not in harmony, so there's conflict and struggle. So when you take this perspective, it, it becomes... When you take this perspective of mind, the practice becomes... so inspiring and so interesting. 
really what we're all doing is just exploring this, this amazing, amazing phenomenon. There are some mental factors or qualities which are called common factors. That is, they arise in every moment of consciousness. They're common to every moment. And there are seven of those common factors. Intention is one of them. But it's not always predominant. It's a factor that's always there, but it's not always the predominant factor. So in our practice, basically we become mindful of intention when it's predominant. So for example, as you're walking, actually there's an intention in every moment of the movement. But it would get quite mind-boggling, you know, to, to be aware of each of those intentions. And so we take the intention at the beginning of the step, right? or maybe the beginning of the movement, where, where it's a very predominant uh, function. And so there's also an intention preceding desire, and there's also an intention conditioned by desire. Uh, working with desire, um, I find that uh, in trying to restrain desire, that I come to the point of desiring not to desire. The problem, the problem of understanding in this in this situation is more a semantic one. And the problem is that in English, we use the word desire to cover a whole range of mind states. One meaning of desire is grasping and clinging. Another meaning of desire is motivation. There can be a motivation to do things free of grasping. In other words, a motivation based on understanding, based on wisdom, based on love. There's that motive to do. We call that desire, the desire for enlightenment, the desire to do something. But it's not the same mind state as the desire of grasping, of clinging. And so you have to look to see if there's a, de- if there's a desire to restrain desire. Right? You have to see what each of those two desires actually refer to. And my sense is that you'll find they're two very different states. The desire to restrain desire, that is, not, not to be pulled out by that wanting mind, the desire not to be pulled out by the wanting mind could 
and must skillfully come from a place simply of understanding, not from a place of grasping or holding. And you'll see that they're two quite different states. It's a good idea. <laughs> That's an edge in practice for almost all of us. You know, we we're attached to sleep, and we're afraid of tiredness. Many of us. And so that's a real playing edge. It's very helpful to play the edge. There's no one model that's going to be appropriate for everyone because it depends, depends on ourselves just as individuals and our systems. It depends on the level of practice. At whatever level of sleep you feel comfortable, push it a little bit. You know, just kind of extend that edge. There is a big difference in the momentum of the practice when you're sitting six or seven or eight hours a day or you're sitting 10, 11, 12 or 13 hours a day. There's a big difference. There's a, there's a qualitative jump that happens in order to be sitting and doing the equivalent or appropriate amount of walking, the only, the only way to create that time is to begin sleeping less. But it's not something to get uptight about. And you can't force it, because then you just make the whole system tight and tense and frustrated, and that's not the way to do it. It's more just a gentle edging towards less sleep and playing and experimenting. One way of doing that is don't go to sleep until you're really tired. Really tired. Zonked. Then go to sleep. But what happens is, and I've seen it in myself very much and lots and lots of yogis, get to a certain point at, at night and you're feeling kind of tired, but not really tired. And then the thought comes, well, if I don't go to sleep now, I'll be tired tomorrow. Right? It's the just-in-case syndrome. <laughs> I better go to sleep just in case. Don't buy into that one. You know, really respond to the energy that's happening. And don't worry about what's going to come the next day. Also, just one other thing about sleep, for those of you who want to play that edge a little bit and really experiment, some people are better at night and can really stay up late. Other people find that actually they're more awake or alert when they first get up. So you can also play the edge by getting up earlier as well as by staying up later. It's definitely worth investigating but again, not to get uptight behind it or to create an ideal or model of how you're supposed to be because we're all different. If you're mindful in the sitting, if the mindfulness is there, the awareness is there, 
for most of you, and in interviews we might adjust it according to the individual case, but generally speaking, to sit as long as you can sit, if the mindfulness is reasonable. To, to be sitting and spacing out the whole time, might as well get up and walk. But if you can sit and you're pretty attentive and it's going on, sit an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, five hours, ten hours. After each sitting, do a good walking period, 45 minutes or an hour, and or sometimes even longer, an hour and a half. Then come back and sit, sit as long as you can, do a walking. But don't think the walking is a is an essential part of the whole balance that's created. So, um, I've been finding that my sitting has been getting better, and my walking has been getting a little bit spacey. Would you recommend more sitting? No. I'd recommend closer attention in the walking. Because, as, as I mentioned in one of the earlier talks, there, there are cycles and stages of practice, and there are times when the sitting feels absolutely, totally wonderful. Clear and rapturous and light, and strong concentration and strong mindfulness, and it just feels like this is it. And a more advanced stage is actually when everything starts dissolving and it gets so fearful and so unpleasant that you can hardly sit for 10 minutes. And so you really don't know. For that reason, it's helpful to just let go of any evaluation and simply be with what's happening and let the process unfold according to its own law. Would you say something about continuing to sit when everything hurts? (laughs) Is that um, important to do, or is it a merit in At different times, different responses are appropriate. So, for example, you're sitting, and you're just dealing with a lot of pain or unpleasantness, Everything hurts. Everything is really unpleasant. If you can sit and be balanced with it, where the mind is balanced and soft and allowing and simply experiencing it, that's fine. There's no problem and and you should continue. When it gets to the point of struggle, where, where it's just hurting so much and the mind is really struggling, at that point, you have to really feel or intuit what you actually want to do. And there are two choices. One is to move or change position. Because there's not so much point in simply struggling. The point of the practice is to do that which is most conducive to mindfulness. 
So often, if you're just sitting there in this total struggle, it would be more helpful to move and change position or walk and continue. There are times, however, when you will want to sit just to see what happens, to really investigate, okay, what is going on here? I'm going to sit, let me die. But that has to come not from what you think you should be doing, but because at that time, that's what you want to be doing. And the wanting to be doing it will give you the energy and the interest to actually stay there with it. And so both of those options are open, and at different times, you'll feel inclined to choose one or the other. Okay, I think I can do some walking now. And I wasn't terribly fond of cats. So every time we'd come in, I'd get a bit irritated and throw it out. And it would just come right back in. (laughs) And I'd get irritated and throw it out. And it would come right back in and I'd throw it out. And it happened over and over again, day after day. (laughs) And it was really driving me nuts. Because every time it came in, I'd get more irritated and throw it out. But it, it totally persisted. You know, it just kept coming back into my room. <laughs> dumb cat. You know? <laughs> but actually it was dumb me. <laughs> and then after, after quite a few times of this, I just gave up. You know, it was, obviously it wasn't doing any good to keep throwing it out. So I just let it come in and I sat there. And I came in and stayed a little while and walked out. <laughs> Take a look in your practice at what you're throwing out. And we keep throwing things out and they keep coming back. Mm-hmm. And you don't like them, you throw them out again. They keep coming back. Try not wanting but asking. That is just... And the mind comes then to its own natural balance. You come to just the unfolding of our being in that way. Okay, there's... It's a quarter to eight now. If you walk for about 45 minutes, till 8.30 and sit for an hour till 9.30. Thank you. By the way, Munindra will be coming in April. So (laughs) for those of you who would like to explore the complexity of it, he is definitely the one to do it with. has different levels. The foundation of delusion is lack of mindfulness or lack of awareness. For example, if we're lost in thought and we're not aware that we're thinking, that's delusion. It's taking the thought to be more than a thought. The sense that The thought of your mother is not your mother. But when you're lost in the thought, we take that to be real. We react to it as if it's real. So that's delusion. 
Delusion when we're not aware of the three characteristics of existence. For example, when we take what's impermanent to be permanent, that's delusion. If we take what's selfless to be self, to be I, that's delusion. When we take what's suffering or unsatisfactory to be satisfactory, it's delusion. So it's pretty pervasive. (laughs) (laughs) And as Sharon indicated, it really takes a very strong commitment of energy to awaken, to awaken the mind from that delusion. Because all, so much of our conditioning has been to reinforce delusion and ignorance. Human realm, in the sense of the natural realm, not the moment to moment time space, the human realm and the earth as we know it. Do you mean are there human realms on other planets? (laughs) I don't really know, (laughs) but according to the cosmological theory. Each world system has 31 planes of existence, right? the lower realms and the human realms and the deva realms and the brahma realms, and there are 31 of those different planes. So it's one world system. And it's said that there are countless, innumerable world systems. Given that description, it would seem that there are other places of human realms. something about um, skillful means and how that develops out of the practice or is it something you can learn or how does that um, skillful means with respect to the practice well I'm not even sure I know what that means actually skillful means okay I'll give you a very simple example which you'll be able to relate to in terms of skillful means with regard to right effort. If the effort is too tight, the skillful means is to relax a bit. If the effort is too lax, the skillful means is to rev it up a little bit. And so, in any situation, it's not that there's an absolute tighten or loosen, but always it's relative to where the imbalances. So skillful means means coming back to balance, coming back to the middle. Something that I've reflected on a lot in terms of the meditation practice, in terms of life situations, has to do with a deepening understanding of what the middle path is. Now the Buddha so often characterized the Dharma as the middle way or the middle path And so often we find that imbalance is when we've lost the middle between two extremes. And whether it's the imbalance of effort or in interpersonal relationships or in different situations, when there's conflict or when it feels like we've lost our balance, 
it might be useful to think in terms of coming to the middle between the polarities. And how to do that is the skillful means. They come a lot from experience. And they can come from guidance, they can come from books. But, but most deeply it comes from your own experience. I imagine that you've heard this example, but it's a, it's a really good one, illustrating that. Uh, it's from Ajahn Chah, Jack's teacher in Thailand, talking about skillful means. He said, if you see somebody walking down a road that you know very well, and you see them veering off to the right, you know, into a ditch or a dead end, you'll shout up and you say, go left, go left. If you see them falling off to the left, into a ditch or the side, you'll shout up and say, go right, go right. It's not a question of one answer. It's a question of adjusting or balancing to the middle again. Should it be skillful to be balanced? You could think of this whole game as balance of mind. Really what we're doing is learning to bring the mind into balance, the balance of factors, because it's out of that perfect balance. And balance, you could think of it almost in terms of a balanced scale. You know, and at first it's going like this and this, and that's how our minds are. And then slowly the movements become less until there's perfect equilibrium. That is no movement of mind, which doesn't mean that things aren't happening. Everything's happening. The whole world, all existence is arising and passing away, but the mind is not moving, not reaching out, not pushing away. It's out of that balance that enlightenment happens, that opening to the unconditioned. So in that sense, balance is everything. That's why, again, saying it many times, it's not what's happening that's important. It doesn't matter what's happening because balance can be cultivated with any experience. So the idea of practice is not to get rid of the pain in the knee, and it's not to have a certain particular experience. Rather, it's to bring the mind into balance with whatever is going on. I hope that's clear, because it's really fundamental to the practice. When you understand that, it's a big relief because you don't have to make anything special happen. Whatever's happening is fine. Can we simply settle back and be there with what's happening in that balanced way? Where we had the women's group, um, one of the things that came up was talking about how what is said, or what has been said, Jacqueline said, um, is that one of the things that is that was noticed is that women can attain deep levels but have a problem, more of a problem sustaining them. And I mean that's sort of been coming home real, real close lately. And I see that when I get to a certain point and then it starts, whatever comes up, usually it's fear of some sort, and I start going off and you know, that's how I've noticed some some patterns, and that's when the patterns start happening. What I'm wondering about is, 
when that starts to happen, when, when a fear arises because of feeling like a new level of, of something, a new freedom or a new understanding, and then fear comes up and I start going off into an old pattern, how to moderate that? How then to work on the middle? Right. On the balance. Yeah, I understand. I, um, I was just thinking about the first thing you said. And it's just to share with you that maybe you feel that to be true about sort of the difference between men and women, but it doesn't resonate with me as being a difference. Uh, I think men have an equally hard time sustaining. <laughs> <laughs> to the point of your question, though. It really has to do with your relationship with fear. And that's the place to look and explore. Because if your relationship with fear is one of friendship, then as fear comes up, you won't be pushed outside of the moment, in order to avoid feeling it. But mostly, we're conditioned not to like the experience of fear. And so fear comes up, and immediately we do whatever we can to avoid that feeling, which can be spacing out a lot of different things. The place to come back to the middle, the middle in that sense, is what's actually happening in that moment, which is the state of fear experience of fear. Something that I've worked with some of you in interviews, and it might be a useful, skillful means in working with fear, very often we know exactly what to do. We have a tremendous amount of wisdom in relating to these mind states when they're in other people. And so one way of kind of remembering sometimes to visualize just this child. Now, suppose you met a child who was sitting outside full of fear. How would you relate to that child? You'd probably go and be very supportive and caring and present, not feeding the fear and not condemning it, just being there for it, right? You'd be there for that child. But when we feel fear, we beat it, you know, get away, I don't like you, which would just be like saying to this child, get lost, kid, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. It's internalizing that child. So fear is present, how do you relate to it skillfully? By embracing it. Not wallowing, not identifying with it, not condemning, not avoiding, just cradling it. What was uh, when Christianity was a reference to uh, evil spirits and, or demons, devils, and, and Buddhism Buddha was a reference to demons? Uh, and is, uh, is evil, would that be ignorance or unskillfulness? I think that the sort of the translation into Buddhist terms would be. 
unwholesome states, unwholesome mind states. And you could think of demons as being the hindrances. You know, and demons is really just a personification of mind states. And that way it, it both demystifies it a little bit and makes it much more workable. Um, in a collection of teachings called The Wisdom of the Desert Fathers, which tells about the early Christian mystics uh, who lived hermit-like in the desert, they speak a lot of the demons of sloth and of pride and of fear. And it's just using that terminology. I think it's not so helpful to externalize which is what can happen when, when we uh, use that metaphor. So it's more helpful to see it as being mind states because it, it gives us... Uh, it's easier to work with it then in a skillful way. What is the significance of color and can it be implemented in the practice? There's not... I'm familiar with the use of color in certain healing meditations, you know, and it's clear that different colors have different vibratory energies to them. It's not really part of the Vipassana practice. Um, there are times spontaneously when either different colors will appear in the mind or a very pervasive experience of light in the mind and body but there's no emphasis at all on either inducing that or trying to make it stay. It's just another part of passing phenomena. Reverse the cassette. but there's no emphasis at all on either inducing that or trying to make it stay. It's just another part of passing phenomena. There is, in um, concentration techniques, there's a whole set of very classical methods of practice of developing concentration on colored discs. They're called casinas. And there's the red and the blue and the yellow. and um, So in that way it's used in practice, but that, that also is not a Vipassana practice, but just for one-pointedness. Did you have something else in mind, or was that...? No. Huh?
Parinirvana is what happens at the death of a fully enlightened being. Nirvana is the experience of the unconditioned while these aggregates of existence still continue. Is that clear? <laughs> um, what is forgiveness in the Buddhist perspective? I know, like, I mean, if guilt doesn't exist and there is no God, per se, where is, what am I doing when I say, may I be forgiven? Okay, first of all, guilt does exist, <laughs> as you may have noticed. <laughs> It's not a very skillful state, but it definitely arises. Forgiveness in a very fundamental way is the acknowledgement of impermanence. The real acknowledgement that no matter what's been done, no matter what action has been done, everything is changing all the time. Right? The situations have changed and we're changing and the, the other person's changing. So there's nothing static, there's nothing steady. To be unforgiving is to make something permanent, which is another form of delusion. Really, when the exper- as the experience of impermanence gets more and more integrated in us, Forgiveness becomes the natural expression of that understanding. If I forgive someone, doesn't it imply that I'm accepting a prior judgment? You'll have to... S- In other words, mm. I can only forgive you if I've already judged you. And it seems to me that rather than forgive you, I'd rather, in some way, let go of the judgment. Okay, or there can be immediate forgiveness. That is, suppose somebody does something that harms you or hurts you. And there, there can be that sense of forgiving, right? Of not, not judging and not uh, condemning. And it doesn't mean, uh, just to, to be very clear, it doesn't mean that First of all, that we sit back and that everything is fine and we never respond to situations because sometimes strong response is necessary. And it doesn't mean that we don't discriminate between skillful and unskillful actions because both in ourselves and in other people, we can be very aware that an action is unskillful. But that need not either cause guilt in ourselves or an unforgiving attitude towards the other person. It can, it can be the cause of some insight for ourselves, realizing that something's unskillful and learning from it, not doing it again. And it can be the cause of forgiveness and compassion for other people, seeing that people do things unskillfully out of ignorance. Or what's, what's the response to that? When we see it on that level, then compassion becomes the automatic response because we just see people walking into fire not knowing, unknowingly. 
um, I'm wondering, um, it is useful to be able to get rid of the feeling by thinking about it, and it's also useful just to be able to sit with it, but where's the balance between just letting it endure and trying to rid yourself of a adverse feeling? When you are, are truly mindful of the feeling that comes, whether it's an unpleasant feeling, like aversion, or a pleasant one, as you're mindful of the feeling, what happens? Changes anyway. It's really, in some way, there's a very fundamental difference between therapy and meditation. And it's important to understand what that difference is. Therapy works on the level of the content of thoughts and emotions and seeing where the patterns come from and how we get caught in them. And it really explores and helps often to untangle the content. Meditation has to do with seeing the impermanent, empty nature of all phenomena. And so it's letting go rather than figuring out. When we're very skilled at letting go, the figuring out becomes less and less important. You said that it's awareness that purifies the mind. Um, is that the same as that it's mindfulness that purifies the mind? And is it is it useful that that awareness is microscopic or, you know, is it the moment-to-momentariness of it that's important? Or could you talk about that? It is. I'm using awareness and mindfulness in the same way, in that context. One of the, one of the ways it purifies the mind, one of the characteristics of mindfulness as a mental factor is that it's never associated with an unwholesome mind state. For example, when you're mindful of anger, when there's real mindfulness of anger, you're not angry. When there's mindfulness of desire, you're not desiring. Because in the moment of mindfulness, it's never associated with unwholesome states. In that sense, every moment of mindfulness is a purification. There's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no delusion in that moment. What was the second part? I was wondering whether um, what aspect of that is is important. Like, is it the um, oh, the microscope? It's important on all levels because we live our life on all levels, right? and so it's important to be aware of us to be mindful you know, of ourselves as a human being, relating to other people, to the environment. It's also essential to develop the mindfulness and awareness more microscopically so that we break through the illusion of self as being this body, or this, this mind-body process. And it seems so solid, and it seems so, so me, And yet when the attention is very microscopic, the momentariness of phenomena becomes apparent, it's the boundaries start dissolving. It's it's like looking at this through a high-power microscope. And so the solidity begins to dissolve, and that strong identification begins to dissolve.
in this last two weeks, I'd urge you to spend some time re-emphasizing the concentration aspect of practice because it's through the power of concentration that we can penetrate to deeper levels of microscopicity (laughs) or something like that. It's concentration which is going to give that penetrating power to the mind. One way of doing that, coming back to skillful means again, you might spend one sitting a day or two sittings a day just working with the breath, not having an open, choiceless awareness, but redirecting the mind, refocusing the mind. You can do it either just by the noting of rising, falling, or in and out, or by counting the breaths. If you do that one time a day, one sitting or two sittings a day, it will just give a slight boost to that concentration factor, which will be helpful. You would develop strong concentration. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to experiment and do it for a week, right, it it would be worth um, would be worth doing that. Concentration by itself is not sufficient, right? but it's an indispensable component of the practice, and so it's it's worth spending some time really developing that power of mind and then employing it in the service of insight into the process. Okay, one last question. There's, uh, I'm asking a question about thoughts that are connected with fears. Um, like an obsession or something like that. It's sort of a way of thought seems like our tendency is to wrestle with these things and try and shut them out of awareness. And in therapy, a lot of times, you, you try and figure out what the content of these things is. How do you, how do, you do meditation kind of let go of this vicious circle of trying to fight thoughts away that cause fear? There are different ways. I the one that has been the most fruitful for me in working with obsessive thoughts is to finally get bored with them. When you sit with that thought for 10 billion times, there's going to come a time in your practice where you will be really bored with that thought. It's at that point that you could employ a cutting action because there'll still be a momentum going from the, from the pattern. But at that point where you've seen it over and over and over again, enough. And you really take a strong cutting action in the mind. That's one way. Another way 
is to use the thought not to stay on the content level of it, what the particular obsession happens to be, but use it as a time to investigate the nature of thought, the nature of the phenomenon. And so you turn it, you transform that thought into from being an adversary of this obsession into a welcome guest in the mind. Because there's another opportunity for you to touch directly and experience directly what a thought is. And for myself in practice, it's one of the most interesting, fascinating (coughs) investigations. Because our lives are so conditioned by thoughts. Mostly, our lives are spent just being dragged along by our thoughts. We follow them. And yet, very rarely do we take the time to investigate what the phenomenon of thought is. Where is it? Where does a thought happen? Does it happen in your head? Does it happen in your elbow? Does it happen in space? You know, where is this? Where is this thing? What is it? It's the most ephemeral, phantom-like phenomenon. And so real, so solidified in most of our experience. And so, if you turn it around in that way and change levels of investigation, again, it ceases to be a problem. tenor of it is clear. emphasizing the importance of being in the moment.
The difficulty in communication comes when we mix levels of concept. And there's a level of relative truth and a level of more ultimate truth. And we communicate on both levels. And sometimes there's confusion because somebody may be communicating on the level of more ultimate truth, the other person hearing it or communicating back on the level of relative truth. As an example, the level of I or being, or the self, that's a relative truth. And we can talk about beings being reborn and dying and going through various aspects of their story. And it's a level that we live on a lot. So it's, it's true on its level, and it would be a mistake to deny that. We relate to one another interpersonally. We relate to ourselves as beings, as personalities. So there's a relative truth to that. There's a a level of perception at which that's true. At a more ultimate level, it's not true at all. There's nobody there. It's just the dance of elements. It's, It's as if we could look at this through an electron microscope the whole sense of self or I or identity or personality would disappear. It would just be, it would just be the experience of the energy. So in the same way, on a relative level, time exists. And we live in that. We live on that level a lot. You know, past and present and future. In terms, though, of the truth of any moment's experience, where is it ever to be found? I mean, our experience is always to be found in the moment. Where else could it be? And those two are not really contradictory. It's just talking about experience, one from a more relative viewpoint, in which we use concepts to describe, as for example in time, a progression of present moments. And a more ultimate level, where we're just in to the experience of that moment itself. And so for me, the the understanding of karma unfolding through the concept of time, in other words, this moment conditions the next moment, conditions the next moment. One example, perhaps of understanding how the law of karma works over time and yet actually is manifesting simply in each moment, Take an an analogous situation of planting a seed in the ground. You plant a seed and it germinates and it becomes a sapling and it becomes a tree and the tree bears fruit and the fruit drops to the ground and there's a new seed which germinates and becomes a sapling and a tree and new fruit. There's an unfolding process over time. It's a process of becoming. This becoming that, becoming the next, becoming the next. There's an unfolding process there. And it unfolds over what we call time. And yet, in any moment's experience, there is just 
the particular stage of treeness that happens to be manifesting in that moment. And whatever moment you look at, okay, there's either the sapling or the tree or the fruit. Karma is analogous, the law of karma is analogous to the law of that seed which says that if you plant an apple seed, you don't get a mango. There's a law to the unfolding. It's not chaotic. Given this, that arises. Given an apple seed, an apple tree, an apple fruit will happen. In the same way, each moment's experience conditions is part of this process of becoming. And it's happening lawfully. It's not happening chaotically. And it just makes sense. I mean, even, even if we can see it in a, in a very detailed way, which is one of the things the Buddha said also, that it is too complex to see how we do an action now, how is that going to you know, bring a result in ten years. It would be very hard to see that. But in a much more immediate way, pay attention to the effect even in the moment, or the, the proximate moments, mind gets angry. You're in a relationship and the mind gets angry and you express the anger. Pay attention to the result. You, know, you, can, see right, you can see right in the moment that there's a result for one's own mind, a result in terms of the impact of that energy what comes back because of that impact. And with some reflection you could understand that every moment is conditioning a certain tendency of mind. So, for example, if there's a situation and we respond with anger, it's conditioning or habituating that response. So we're in that situation or a like one sometime down the road And there's a likelihood that the same response will be there because we've established a certain habit pattern. And you know, the stronger, the more we cultivate particular responses, that pattern becomes very strong. And that's really what we call our personality. Just that accumulation or conglomeration of different patterns of response. Does that address any of your concerns? Okay, one thing that I would suggest with all of the uh, these kinds of teachings it's not at all a question of belief because you believe it or you don't believe it does not affect the truth of it or the, or the non-truth of it. Right? Our belief has nothing to do with anything. And so you certainly don't have to believe it and it's not even suggested that you believe it. More is, what I think is more valuable, is to stay open to the consideration of it. And just sort of have it in your mind as an investigation. And just see. You know, see from your experience 
whether things, whether as your life unfolds, this particular idea or theory or set of concepts seems to fit you know, to the unfolding of your experience or not. similar to the flashes from the subconscious uh, it's a two-fold question I've had very weighty technical problems that I just couldn't work out and I wake up one morning and there was the answer to my first thought and then the second second question was in the higher states of meditation do the conscious and subconscious merge The first question had to do with whether whether the flashes of insight the same as these flashes of intuition, sudden solving of a problem. In some way it's the same and in some ways it's different. It's the same in the sense that as we go through different levels of insight or understanding, It's sudden. It's intuitive. It's not discursive. It doesn't come as the result of sitting down and thinking about it. So, for example, as we deepen our understanding of impermanence, of selflessness, it's not going to come from sitting and reflecting on selflessness or impermanence. It comes from that intuition in the same way that there's a problem that's in our mind and then all of a sudden the the solution appears to us. So it's not a deductive process. It's an intuitive one. So in that way they're the same. In one of the great Zen texts it's described as a sudden wordless understanding. It's different in the sense that It's not a thought. The insight doesn't come as a thought. It comes as a level of experience. And so it's not that you're going to get up one morning and at the fourth, you know, the 5.30 sitting, this sudden flash is going to come, everything is impermanent. I mean, that might happen, but that's thinking, thinking. The insight into impermanence comes from the dropping into another level of the experience of it. Do you see the difference? The dropping into that other level of the experience of it comes intuitively. And so all we can really do is put in our time. You know, you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk. And if you can simply surrender to being with the unfolding process, by itself, the deepening of insight happens. The second question about 
the subconscious and conscious Sometimes we have the idea that the subconscious is like this, I don't know, compartment in the mind, or this little black box, you know, in the mind, and sort of it leaks out during dreams <laughs> and some other times. I don't know about your experience, but I've never found that little black box in my mind, you know, and. A more useful model for me has been to rather see consciousness as a spectrum and there's a threshold. And everything above the threshold is conscious and everything below the threshold is subconscious. But it's not as if it's separate compartments. It's just that we have a certain limit or threshold of sensitivity, of awareness, to what's happening in the mind. One of the things that becomes very apparent is that through the practice, the threshold deepens. And so what formerly would have been very unconscious or subconscious now is very conscious. And just take a very simple example of you know, passing thoughts or images, which a month ago might well have gone by unnoticed. It would have been there, but it would have been subconscious. And it would have been motivating and influencing us in the ways that subconscious things do without our knowing it, without our being aware. Just by paying attention, we get, we get increasingly sensitized to more and more of the range of what's in the mind. The que- Did you hear in the back? The question had to do with um, having, like most of us, been conditioned and brought up with concepts quite different than things like karma and rebirth, that for the most part he's just put that on hold, you know, not knowing and not putting it aside from now, for now. And yet friends and people he's connected with in the Dharma have suggested that it actually is important to believe that. I would phrase it slightly differently. I would say that it's important to understand it. And I think it's very important to understand it. To believe it and not to understand it seems like just another blind belief. seems like an opinion that one has, right? which is not connected to anything. It's not connected to your experience. It's not even connected, really, to your belief. Right? It's just kind of <laughs> the set of concepts, oh yes, I believe that. And the real belief, or faith, or confidence, comes or is born out of understanding. Right? To whatever extent we can. And again, with some of these ideas, it takes time and real sensitivity and openness and investigation to begin to get some sense of what they mean. I think it's, it's very, very important to do that. 
problem with the understanding. The question is merely, does it happen? And does it matter? I guess I can, the best way of responding would be to share my experience with relating to those ideas because like you, when I went to begin my practice, I had a background in Western philosophy and you know, I had no connection with karma, with rebirth. They were completely strange ideas to me. And first through hearing and reading about it and trying to come to some understanding of it, staying open to it on that level, the process that happened for me was not an experience where I could say, yes, I've seen past lives, I've seen future lives, I know that it's true. Rather, it was an intuitive sense, an increasingly deep intuitive sense of the truth of it, reinforced by asking some people who I trusted very deeply were honest, asking them, knowing that they had the powers to see this, whether they have actually seen themselves, not from books, not from opinions, where they have actually seen the different realms and beings dying and reborn, and then saying yes. So that that was a strong reinforcement of my own intuitive sense of it. You know, I really have to (laughs) preface what I'm going to say by saying that I am not an expert in karma. (laughs) You know, and in terms of um, the full understanding, even on the conceptual level, of how it all works, Munindra, one of my teachers, would be able to expound at great length (laughs) on... (laughs) (laughs) happily (laughs) you know on a lot of the the technicalities of the of the workings of it I just don't I haven't done that degree of of the study of it Um, to, to the extent that I understand it not everything that we experience is a karmic result there are certain laws of physical the physical properties Um, which bring results but are not the result of karma, rather just the result of a physical law. Um, For an example, the the apple seed, producing an apple rather than a a pear, is not karmic. 
that's, that's following a certain law, with, like, it's called the law of germination, the, the law of seeds, that things are ordered. <laughs> They're ordered... <laughs> it's actually more profound than you might think. <laughs> <laughs> this law of seed. <laughs> anyway, there, there are certain laws just governing the physical elements, which are not karmic. But, as I said, for a more detailed uh, exposition. Right. <laughs> a moment ago, you mentioned people whom you trust have seen a different reality that they've reported to. Now, does that mean that there's a Buddhist reality and an Indian reality and a Hindu reality, just as there are different heavens? What happens when each of these systems contains different symbols? Does that mean there are alternate realities in each of these symbols? Because they don't all coincide with one another. How does one deal with that? My sense is that the descriptions may not be the same, right? but that um, the experience of different levels of, of reality seem very similar to me. But let's say, for example, that they're all reporting the same reality, but using a different set of symbols based on training or whatever it might be. Right. Can one trust that this is a report of any reality? Since the symbols involved have to be based on some kind of trained past experience. Could you give me an example? Uh, Buddhist heaven is not a Christian heaven, you know. A Christian dies and they come back from death and they report seeing Christ. Well, Buddhists do too. No, but, yeah, no, you're sure. Buddha see Christ. Well, uh, an American Indian is not going to have seen Christ before he heard of Christ. How do you know? I don't know. There was a report. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, the, the sense I get from people who have that kind of power of mind, especially when it's, when it's developed in a very systematic way, is that there's a power of mind to see all the realms where all the different, the, the Christian heavens, the Buddhist heavens, and the you know, American Indian heavens. The beings are there. You know, beings are there from all, from all backgrounds and from all cultures. But again, <laughs> it's interesting, and I would hope that you stay open to the consideration of it, right, but don't get too spun out in it. Don't work out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know so, and so I guess my question specifically 
why bother having any kind of plan to do anything because is not karma just sort of taking you along the trip and you're not aware of it? Karmic results have to do with the feelings that are experienced. Right? When we experience something that's pleasant or unpleasant, that pleasantness or unpleasantness, that's the karmic result. And so the planning mind, and whether it happens or it doesn't happen, that's not necessarily the working of a karmic law. Right? The feelings associated with however it works out, that's the karmic fruit. Is that difference clear? And so we can align our energies to achieve a certain result. Now we do it all the time, to, to plan and to direct our energy in a particular way. And maybe it works out exactly as we thought, or similar to, or not at all. But there can definitely be that directing of our energy. And then the feelings that we experience in that process, that's going to be the karmic result of past action. It is possible to direct it. And again, I express this not for you to believe or disbelieve. It's just putting it out and do with it what you like. It's actually possible to direct the fruit of an action for a particular result. And so it's said, for example, that before the Buddha's enlightenment in his many lifetimes as a bodhisattva, as a being working towards enlightenment, he would dedicate the fruit of his actions. May this be the cause of my full enlightenment. And may, the, may the purity of this deed be the cause of my full enlightenment. Some people dedicate an action to be reborn in heaven. You know, somebody dedicates an action to fall in love. You can dedicate it for whatever you like. It can be actually um, directed in that way. I think it's helpful to direct it towards the highest happiness, as long as we're directing it. Um, In terms of sharing merit, it's a very common part of the practice to share, and merit just means forces of purity in the mind, kind of all those, the force, the karmic force of all the mind moments of wholesome mind states. There's there's a power there. That's what merit means. It's not like merit badges. Unfortunately, the word suggests that, you know, we collect all these badges.
It's rather just the accumulated force in our own mind, you know, of wholesome mind states. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.